Choke points. Let's go. With special Five, guest host two, Nate Connors two, and with our first mountain snow in the books, it's only appropriate that we declare studded tire season to be upon us. And Nate has the date. November 1st is when studded tires become legal in our state. This applies to all vehicles, including out-of-state, with no exceptions. If you need traction tires before Wednesday, Tina Warner of the State Department of Transportation suggests... We really encourage travelers to explore all of your traction options, um, which can include non-stud winter tread tires, which those are different from all season tires. They're legal all year round and they don't tear up the road. If traction tires are too expensive for you, there is a good option. You know, chains are another uh, really great solution when it comes to uh, providing more traction for your vehicle. They do cause some wear and tear to our roads, but nowhere to the effect that we see with studded tires. Another option is the tire sock. Easy to install, but intended for short-term use. Unlike the tire sock, studded tires do not meet chain requirements. You still need to install chains over studded tires to continue driving in posted areas. Failure to comply with chain requirements could cost you a fine up to $500. If you're like me and have never installed chains before, Tina has this tip. Consider putting on chains maybe in their driveway this time of year. Get a good practice in uh, as opposed to being on the side of I-90 at Snoqualmie Pass and it's dumping. March 31st is when studded tires need to come off to cut down on damage to our roads. Studded tires we know um, can cause upwards of $29 million in damages to our roads every winter. Um, And that also includes damages to city or county roads. The State Department of Transportation typically extends this date if winter conditions still exist. And before you head over the passes, it's always a good idea to fill up with gas and... And then also just make sure you have a go kit, other winter essentials that are available, um, ready to go in your vehicle. Because as we know in Washington, weather can change quite rapidly. Nate Connors, Cairo News Radio. I hate change. Uh, Chris, has there been any improvement at all in in chain technology, like automatically uh, chains that mount themselves or something like that? I'm going to check into that because, I mean, I know some of the, the old ones that we're used to, you know, the cable ones were just the worst, where you, yeah. you're trying to get Horrible. them and then you realize that you cut it to fit your tire last winter so the outside doesn't just destroy your rim and then you realize it's too cold. You can't go and get the thing stuck mm. together. Yeah. That's the worst. But, I mean, they do have different t- styles now that are a little easier to work with. Uh, the socks are a good idea, but, you know, you got to get those off as soon as you yeah. get out of so the do snow. do the socks work? A, a little bit, yeah. I mean, again, once you get up into something where you've got like five or six inches of snow, yeah. you're going to need something a little bit better than that. Uh, and the, the one thing I've been, uh, as a matter of fact, yesterday I was at Les Schwab getting my tires changed uh, over because we got to start driving to Montana soon, and Lookout Pass was shut down yesterday afternoon. That's at mm. the Idaho-Montana border. Oh, wow. Uh, but people weren't expecting the snow they got there yesterday. But uh, is that... I was trying to read to get the information from Tina because you remember the last couple of seasons we shut down Snoqualmie a lot, a lot. and there was uh, issues with staffing because remember coming out of the COVID year in right. 2021 we were down 200 maintenance workers for winter operations last year we were down 128 I don't have the current staffing numbers I've asked for them hoping that we will be in a little bit better position but the number one thing we have to remember is even if Washdot is less staffed and doesn't have the ability to open these things quicker. The primary problem on Snoqualmie Pass are is unprepared drivers. Yeah. I mean, people who go up there who shouldn't in cars that shouldn't go up there or they refuse to follow those tire restrictions. Well, I guess they assume it's an interstate, so it's going to get priority and it's going to be clear by the time they get up there. But again, our snow is so wet 
and different than other type of snow. I mean, I, I drive across seven major passes between here and Bozeman. Mm. Snoqualmie is always the worst. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And it's not necessarily always because of the drive, but our snow here is, and if you're not used to the how it grabs and how it's it's so much, it's so water thick mm-hmm. that it's different than that Midwest kind of snow. Uh, so yeah, just if you're not prepared, don't go up there. I mean, don't go up there in your Prius, Dave, without no, change. Please, I, <laughs> I surrendered years ago. I mean, you, I, two kids went to Gonzaga, right? So I got used to the commute between here and Spokane. Oh, yeah. And one time I timed it wrong and was coming back in the snow. And I don't know how many hours it was, but sitting in that line uh, with surrounded by all these other people and, and in the snow and not knowing when you're going to move, that was the last time I ever made that drive in the winter. Yeah. So Yeah. yeah that's I, why how I, often have you had to use chains, though? Of all the years I've lived here, all the years I've gone over the passes, which I don't do often, but often enough that I'm a local, one time. I've never had to use them in my uh, since we moved up here because we've always had an SUV, a mm-hmm. four-wheel drive vehicle, and mm-hmm. I've never had to put all four on. Uh, so that's a, uh, something that I, yeah, I've never had to do. But, uh, it's, but that but drives it's a, home the point that, that it's good to practice. The one time we had to, luckily, Chris knew how to put on the chains, right? Yeah. But it's good to know. So practicing is a good idea. And right? when I go over the pass, we build a kid. I mean, we've got a snow shovel, a little foldable one that we yeah. keep in the back, plenty of water, Kitty extra litter. blankets. Yeah, all sorts of whatever I can use to to, in case to help other people or to make sure that I am uh, you know, can get out of trouble. Well, the Elthamus Susan, as you know, is the Cascade Tunnel Project, and until that's built, I'm afraid we just have to deal with this so every winter. what now? <laughs> the Cascade Tunnel Project. Did you come up with this? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great. I've heard of this idea. I know, what is yet. it, like four, maybe 14 miles or so? We have yeah. enough tunnel boring machines around here. Well, yeah. It, it worked eventually. Work. Seattle's Morning News at 6.36. The archivist of the United States, Dr. Colleen Shogun, is in town and is going to give a free public talk tonight at Seattle Public Library about her role as leader of the National Archives. She's had the job for about six months now. And our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, is here after getting a sneak preview of some of what she'll say. He actually sat down with her for an exclusive interview. Felix. Yeah, good morning, Dave. Yeah, uh, Dr. Shogun was sworn in back in May of this year, so she's fairly new to the job. She's the first woman to serve as archivist of the United States, and she's getting around the country to visit all 42 facilities that are managed by the National Archives and Records Administration which includes a number of both presidential libraries as well as big archive facilities like what we have in Seattle. Now, we had a long conversation yesterday afternoon at the Seattle facility over by Sandpoint and covered lots of ground. My main questions were about the future of that facility after the attempt back in 2020 to shut it down and move all the documents and photos and maps to L.A. and Missouri. Do you remember that story, you guys? That, I yeah, sure do. Ring a bell? Okay. I think we covered it a few times here on this station. Um, and there's some surprising news about that, which we'll get to in a moment. First, though, a couple general points really sunk in for me. National Archives currently has 13.5 billion pages of records, and just about 250 million of those are digitized. I think that's about 3%. So there's a big future of digitization for them. And that's everything from the Declaration of Independence to administrative stuff for federal agencies at a granular level. Now, they call the items they have records. And Dr. Shogun mentioned something she recently saw back in D.C., the actual piece of plotting paper that those two hapless radar guys on the north side of Oahu were using when they inadvertently tracked the first wave of Japanese bombers headed for Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. About uh, Pearl Harbor, but you can imagine the person that was plotting that, and that's you know when when probably you know I'm sure it was a man. He realized, oh no, this is not what this is not U.S. planes coming. There's not American planes coming in. This is something else. Uh, but I thought that was a really uh, really impressive record. Uh, yeah. You know, a simple record actually, um, uh, but told tells what a powerful story, right? 
So it dawned on me sitting there that the National Archives holds the raw materials of democracy, from the dramatic stories to the mundane spreadsheets. It's all there if we take the time to interpret it and share it. And if we make sure our K-12 through students understand how to access and understand what they call primary materials, you know, that real stuff of history. Now, the big news, okay, in talking about Seattle's future as a home to the National Archives... I came prepared with all these questions about its political viability and that it was almost shut down, given that it was almost shut down, and the fact there's $80 million worth of deferred maintenance, you know, the, the roof leaks, there's humidity control issues. In asking those questions, I learned something completely surprising. We're moving forward with plans to build, uh, to plan and build a new facility in the Seattle area for the National Archives. Uh, and there should be funding in uh, the, the fiscal year 24 uh, appropriations legislation once it's, it's passed. It hasn't, the full legislation has not been passed for fiscal year 24, but there should be funding uh, in order to support the planning for a f- new facility and the National Archives will work uh, with GSA, uh, who will help uh, uh, select a site and make plans for a new building. You know, GSA is General Services Administration. Yeah. Somewhere in the Seattle, there will be a whole new facility. There's nine, $9 million in this budget. It's not a done deal yet, Got but it's very promising. Got a lot of office space, so it could be in an existing building for that matter, couldn't it? It could, yeah, but it, it probably not. And then that Sandpoint facility will become surplus. They might yeah. do something else there. That's up to the GSA. But there's $3 million in that budget appropriation to put do some uh, maintenance there to stop the roof leaking, that sort of thing. Now, Dr. Shogun is at a public event tonight at uh, Seattle Public Library. It's at 5.15. It's a little early. She's sitting in conversation with Brad Smith from Microsoft. It's free admission. You have to register in advance. There's a link at my Facebook page. We'll have it at My Northwest uh, later on. But pretty encouraging news. Not a done yeah. deal, but very encouraging news about the future of the National Archives here in Seattle. Excellent. Does she have all, all her CIA documents back from Mar-a-Lago? Did you ask her that? You know, she's, I asked about what's the, in 25 or 29 when we have a new administration, what's anything going to be different? And she said, no, it's business as usual for them. They'll, they'll do what they keep doing in terms of just, you know, they process the documents. It's up to the administration to hand that stuff over when it ends. So very, very politicized, but she was very uh, very deft in, in answering that yes. question and dodging it correctly. Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. has got an update on the conditions in Israel. Report Reports are coming out that Israeli forces have taken some kind of ground action overnight in Gaza. And I called up CBS's Linda Gradstein, who's in Jerusalem, and asked her about the intensity of that operation. Well, it was a very limited ground action of um, a few, some tanks went over uh, into Gaza. And um, they, uh, the Israeli army said that it was to um, prepare the way for the ground invasion, um, and then and then the tanks left. So it wasn't a large-scale ground incursion, but it is the first ground incursion that we know of. Give us a sense for w- what it's like in the in the streets in Jerusalem. I saw an article in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, um, which was headlined "Israeli Arabs Afraid to Leave Their Homes for Fear that They They Could Be Attacked in Some Way." Is that is that a a real concern? Yeah. So there's um, there's definitely uh, sort of tensions in Jer- in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, you know, more of forty percent of the population are Palestinians. And so I think there's a lot of tension and people are nervous. I know the gym that I go to uh, in the evening was almost all uh, Arab citizens of Israel, Arab Palestinians, and now it's empty in the evenings. I also heard, uh, we also saw a report that Hezbollah has attacked a U.S. air base in, in western uh, Iraq. Uh, are, is the army concerned about another front opening here? Well, basically, another front has already opened. Um, there have been almost daily skirmishes between uh, Israeli soldiers and Hezbollah troops. 
uh, Israel is um, re- Hezbollah has been firing anti-tank rockets over the border at, is- at Israel. Israel has been responding with airstrikes, and at least 30 Hezbollah fighters have been killed since the fighting began. Um, and Israel has evacuated a lot of the communities up there, just like it's evacuated people from Gaza, from the Gaza area. So there are now what the 200,000 internally displaced people in Israel and um, staying in hotels and guest houses and things like that. And actually, Israel is building a couple of tent cities because it it just doesn't have the capacity. Um, That said, at least so far, it seems that Hezbollah does not want a full-scale war with Israel, um, that Israel has warned that if Hezbollah really enters the war, it will consider all infrastructure targets in Lebanon as possible uh, places that they can strike. Uh, People in Lebanon are pressuring Hezbollah not to widen the war. And from the Israeli side, I mean, Israel fought a war with Hezbollah in 2006. Uh, Hezbollah has some 150,000 rockets that could reach all parts of Israel. Uh, So at least there is a lot of tension, but so far there is not a second front. We're hearing from CBS's Linda Gradstein. And one of the big questions, of course, is when is this main Israeli insurgent uh, incursion going to happen? And uh, I, I asked her if there's any indication that it's U.S. pressure to minimize casualties that is delaying this uh, this planned move into Gaza. Well, they're certainly still preparing for a ground incursion. And, and, you know, Israeli officials have been repeating day after day that it's only a matter of time. That said, it's not clear if it's going to be a full-scale ground incursion, which is going to could conceivably take months, or if it's going to be more sort of pinpointed strikes like what we saw uh, overnight. And um, apparently, you know, the reports, there are two reasons. The first is the Israeli hostages. I mean, this is a huge deal in Israel, more than 220 uh, Israelis and foreign citizens. There's a couple of dozen Thai workers, by the way, included, because they worked in agriculture uh, in these kibbutzim. So, um, you know, Israel feels uh, that it has to do everything it can to get the return of the hostages. Uh, Four of them have been released, uh, mother and daughter, over last weekend, and then two elderly women earlier this week. Uh, So the question, and there's been all kinds of reports that Qatar is trying to broker some kind of a deal that would at least see the women and children released. So I think that's one reason. And the second reason um, is that the United States has been pressuring Israel not to launch a ground invasion until the humanitarian situation improved in Gaza and or uh, the United States has more air defenses in place for its troops if uh, the conflict spreads beyond Israel-Gaza. Has Israel issued any kind of an ultimatum, uh, you know, that, that if fulfilled could avoid an invasion? Like, uh, you know, you have 24 hours to turn over the leadership of, of Hamas, otherwise we're coming in. Anything like that? No, no, not yet. And and Israel, um, you know, every day says that it is um, assassinating top Hamas officials. Just now, in fact, they said that um, they uh, they killed in in the in the city of Khan Yunis the head of Hamas's North Khan Yunis rocket striker Hassan Al Abdullah, and they said that the airstrike was carried out after intelligence information on his whereabouts. And fighter jets struck and killed several more Hamas members and destroyed several sites belonging to Hamas. So Israel says that it is uh, hitting Hamas every day. CBS's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. 
I'm sorry she had to do that. I remember when my girls did their first. It's, uh, yeah, it's surreal. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Baird, focused on your financial needs since 1919. Students are building bridges across the American divide. CBS's Lee Cowan has the story. It's nice to meet you. This past summer, more than 300 high school graduates signed up for a unique student exchange program. Diana, hi. Unlike the well-known foreign exchange model that affords students a chance to study abroad in, say, Europe or Asia, this program gives students the opportunity to soak in a brand new culture without ever leaving the country. We fund kids to spend a week in the summer after senior year in an American town that is politically and socioeconomically and culturally very different from the one that they're growing up in. It's called the American Exchange Project, or AEP for short, co-founded by 29-year-old David McCullough III, the grandson of the late Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David McCullough. I grew up in the ivory tower, like a, a life of enormous privilege. And I wanted to get out of, out of all of that, see a part of the country that I'd not really been exposed to, but I knew was out there. Ready to go. We're going to miss you. So in 2016, he borrowed his mom's Mazda and spent the next two months driving across the country, part Jack Kerouac, part Tom Sawyer, heading down the Mississippi. I thought I'd be chased away. I thought doors would be slammed in my face. I thought people wouldn't want to talk to me. Not only did that not happen, the opposite of that happened everywhere I went. I really enjoyed it. For the past three years, he's been giving high school graduates that same experience. And so far, at least, it's having the impact he hoped it would. Like my groups of friends or friends are not really close to each other. So I feel like I've actually bonded with you guys more than I have with my own friends. I've never been a part of a community where I could just, I'm not the minority, I'm not the odd one out. So this is very much like an experience that I really appreciate so much. Are you ready already? Okay, 10 seconds. David McCullough hopes to offer the program to a million students a year by decade's end, and all free of charge, thanks to big name donors, including the likes of Steven Spielberg and others. I think this ought to be as typical to the American high school experience as the prom. I think every kid in every town should have an experience like this. That is CBS's Lee Cowan reporting. 749 and now from the Generously Show, here is G. Scott. So you don't believe the story about the off-duty pilot being under the influence of magic mushrooms? Um, According to what he has said, right? I mean, he said that he was under that. I don't believe that magic mushrooms make you go and do what he uh, allegedly attempted to do on a plane. At least Mm -hmm. if you look at the history, that hasn't happened yet. I do believe that when you bring this discussion up, when you bring up, um, excuse me, um, mushrooms in this case, this gives people ammunition to just be like, oh, it's the mushrooms. And to me, it is no different than the fear-mongering that has happened around drugs in the past. You know what? I got some quotes for you. You ready? Here we go. I'm ready. This person says, you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. 
There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the United States, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Who said that? That was Harry Ainslinger, who is and was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Mm-hmm. That propaganda right there was the very beginning of the war on drugs, and he used it by demonizing racial and immigrant groups, including Billie Holiday when he used to go after musicians. The reason why I bring that up is because I don't know what it is, but we sit here and we try to attach Wow, mushrooms made them. There's people that a hundred people a year worldwide die from mushrooms. A hundred mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So you're saying that, well, you're not arguing this is, we're using mushrooms now to demonize white people as mushroom addicts? No. No. I'm just giving you a quote and I'm showing you how propaganda and I'm showing you how fear mongering can last for years. And for so many years, because of the uh, first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics saying those things that lasted and it still lasts today. I'm bringing it up to say this. That man got on that plane and he did that whacked out stuff, not because of the mushrooms, because people that do mushrooms that people they don't think most people don't get on planes and try to do that stuff. And if I'm wrong, show me. Show me in your time of doing you've been doing this for 40 years. You tell me a time that someone's gotten on a plane yeah, and tried to do rare. this. It's very rare. But he we're all searching for some kind of explanation as to why a trained and vetted pilot suddenly goes off the rails like that. And the one thing that we've seized on, I guess because this came out in the police interview, is that he had magic mushrooms. I suppose it could just be random. I mean, there's something wrong with the guy, right? Obviously. Okay. No doubt. Yeah. So I guess the question is, how do we figure that out to uh, prevent it from happening? He says he was dreaming. I'll tell you what this raised in me. When you when you dream sometimes, right, and you know you're dreaming, you take a risk, right, in your situation. Uh-huh. Can you imagine if it turned out that you actually weren't dreaming? And that's what that's what I'm hearing this guy say. I, I thought it was having a dream. And in a dream, sometimes you say, oh, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that because I'm going to wake up pretty soon. Except it was real. That's hmm. what scares me. Could that happen to just anybody, you think? I guess I ain't an expert. I can't really speak on it, but I'll leave you with this. We live in a society where people try to justify what others do, and they say things like this. Oh, I can't believe he did that. He, he doesn't seem like the type that would do something like that. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you know what? Truth is, there's some crazy people out here. Yeah. They need to be locked up forever. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock. And that's Mickey time. Here she is, our Christmas elf, Mickey Gomez. I can't believe we're talking about it. It's not even Thanksgiving. It's not even not even Halloween yet. Don't I tell know. the craft stories that.
That's right. Well, according to Shopify, 41% of shoppers plan to start holiday shopping by the end of this week. I've already started. Have you really? Yeah. I kind of do it all year, just collect little things here and there. And then the problem Uh is trying not to give those little things early because I love giving gifts. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I sock away things all year and then less stress. I'm I'm horrible. I don't start holiday shopping. Until Christmas Eve. No. Oh, I know. But I love that rush. I love that that excitement. No, seriously. Well, listen, a lot of stores are going to be advertising deals. And Herb Weisbaum, the consumer man, says. Beware of advertising of false prices and discounts that aren't really real deals. Okay. Meaning stores are going to advertise a product. They're going to show you two prices. One with a price X'd out. And then the sales price. Wise Mom says retailers are trying to make you think you're getting a deal when you really aren't. Mm-hmm. He also says shop around. The Internet gives you lots of tools to shop around so that you can find out what a truly good price is. And many stores do price matching. Uh, yes, I've used this actually. Where yes. I'm in a store and I go, oh, I want. And then I look on Amazon. I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, it's $5 cheaper. And I show the cashier and they go, great. They have no problem. Absolutely none, because they want your business. You can look on your cell phone, just like Colleen says. You can get the price, ask the store to match it. And like like Weisbaum says, the consumer man, most stores are going to do it to get your business. If you're not using promo codes and coupons, you're leaving money on the table. Mm -hmm. I love promo codes. Mm -hmm. And one of the tips that I'm going to offer you is sometimes if you just, you know, contact the company that you're shopping with and just say, hey, it's my first time shopping here. Um, I would love to buy a product. Do you have a, a discount shopping code for a first-time shopper? They will email you most times a 20% off coupon or a 10%. Nice. Or, yeah. I want to clarify, though, uh-huh. because it, it crossed my mind. There are so many small businesses struggling mm-hmm. right now in that I do not do the price matching when I'm at, like, a small boutique shop. Right, <laughs> like right. A, like, a, I try to shop at, like, small toy stores. We have mm-hmm. a great one at Edmunds and stuff. I don't do that. But if I'm at, say, like, Home Depot or one of the bigger stores, I will try to do the price match. Absolutely. But just to help out those small businesses, just keep mm-hmm. in mind that they really need your business. Absolutely, they do. He says, now, uh, the consumer man says, checkbook.org's favorite place to find discounts are PayPal Honey, Price Grabber, Shop Savvy, and Yahoo Shopping. And another tip. There's also an Amazon price checking tool called CamelCamelCamel.com. It tracks price histories at items sold at Amazon, so you can get a good idea of what pricing is. Remember, Amazon doesn't always have the lowest price. Shocking, right? I always thought Amazon did have the lowest price. He also says shop with a credit card because of the consumer protection, Mm -hmm. especially if you're going to be shopping online in case the product doesn't come or if it's defective. You can call the credit card company. You can get your money back. He also says do not shop with a debit card. Because it's tied to your checking account and you want to protect your bank account from fraud. And for added discounts, don't forget to show your veterans or military's discount card. My wife has one. She carries her veterans card with her. And sometimes, you know, like she'll say, hey, oh, I see a little sign, military discount. And she'll show the the card and she'll get 20 percent off. Also, don't you know, don't be ashamed to say, hey, I'm a first responder or, or I'm in the medical field. Sometimes stores will give you discounts as well. That's all very. What useful. if you're a journalist? I don't think so. I think I think <laughs> we were first responders, but not in the way that no. right, they right. were first no, responders. Exactly, exactly. Unfortunately, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a wild year. Those are all great tips. I can't mm-hmm. believe you shop on Christmas Eve. I do. How I do just, you ensure that the items get to you on time? I, do the it, I like going into the stores, Colleen. On Christmas Eve? Yes. A lot of times, some of the stores, like for instance, if there's a lot of one particular item and they're trying to get rid of it before the new
new year, they'll discount it. And I yeah. walk in and I'm like, hey, give me three of these. Give me four yeah. of those. Like and then the I, donut shop right before closing. There you go. Because yeah. day old donuts or something, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know what? I've been doing My dad used to do it. My dad would take me with him on Christmas Eve and we would go shopping and we'd have the holiday rush and then we'd go eat Chinese food and then we'd go to the movies. Okay. I, and so it's family tradition. I get it. I no, just thought, wow, you really love to run a deadline, don't you? I yeah. do. But I, but my wife does all the holiday shopping before I do. Like she gets the kids stuff well in advance. You get the extra stuff. I get the extra stuff on Christmas Eve <laughs> because that's just my thing. I love it. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.